So my name is Amir Darwish. Um, I'm originally a Syrian Kurd from the, or originated from the town of Kobani, but born and raised in Aleppo, British Syrian poet who came here in 2003. Welcome to Refugee Radio. about is mainly the human agony and the human pain and uh, the human pain as I depict it in my writing is something that out of the control of any human that they can they can have a, a power over to stop or not to stop or to let it happen or not let it happen uh, so thus I decided to write about the experience of refugees, immigrants, and asylum seekers, uh, and what they are experiencing at the moment, and the, what they call the journey of death, from the crossing the Mediterranean and coming over to Europe. I think that's the most vicious experience any human being can go through, whether to decide to have a life, to leave a life behind, and to decide to come into a new, uh, completely new environment without background knowledge about that environment at what, and what's awaiting them. But deep, deep at the bottom of my writing, I want to send a message and a reminder that these people are at the end are human. They just, not numbers, they're not uh, figures, but they are humans. They have emotions, they had lovers, they had parents, they had children, they, they, they eat in a certain way, they think in a certain way. Uh, and that's very important for me to emphasize that. And I suppose um, poetry is a, is, is a way to connect with people on a human level. Um, it's a very human art form. It's a very um, personal art form, isn't it? Quite an intimate uh, way of tackling a subject. Yes. Poetry, poetry, as poetry relies on the emotions, as you said, it's an it's a, it's, it's a art form that relies on emotions and the humans, they, no matter how much they try to get rid of their emotions, but they will all always go back to that and they will get emotional at some point in life, uh, some points in their life. And they will, they will not be able to shake off their emotions completely. So I chose poetry to be the pathway through. And there's something important about choosing uh, certain poetry and not any poetry that, I try to make it lucid 
and clear and accessible as much as possible for everyone to understand and not just for a certain group of people. Yes, and so the, um, um, uh, I know a, you know a lot of people are intimidated by the idea of poetry or they think it's something quite elite or, um, yeah. and, and some poets do, particularly sort of modernist and postmodernist poets do write for um, other poets perhaps more than they write for the the people generally um and you're yeah. saying that your your poetry is more for it's for everybody and you want it to be understood rather than uh, a crossword puzzle yeah it's a it's, it's the main idea of poetry that's for me that's my own opinion of course i'm i'm not telling anyone how to write or how they should write uh is that it gives a message first and second it's accessible to everybody to read anyone the normal person in the street will pick up the book, the poetry book, and will read it and will understand what this person's going on about. And you have your uh, poem that you read at the book launch, which is called We Want to Live. And I think this is a very powerful example of that. It's very clear and easy to understand, but it doesn't lack power because of that. And that seems to address very directly this issue of the journey of death and that, that you spoke about. Mm. Uh, what caused you to write that poem? What caused me to write that poem is the sheer number of people that were coming across uh, the Mediterranean and the way that they were depicted in the media and the way they were uh, given stereotypes in certain way that these people, this number has crossed, that number has crossed, this number has arrived. And I thought, hang on a second, no matter how big or small is the number, these people are people and human beings. So I thought the best way to, 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 to send a message across is to write a poem clear and say that no matter what, we want to live. No matter what's happening, we want to live. Just like everybody else, we want to stay alive and live our lives uh, and and it should go on as normal you said that's important for the refugees crossing the journey of death not to be seen simply as numbers and of course the danger of that mm. is that they will not be seen as human so they will be dehumanized and i wondered in uh, syria mm. or kurdistan what's the manifestation of this dehumanization well there uh and particularly i'm talking about syria and whether it's in all its parts uh, the the dehumanization process has taken place long time ago and these people they were stripped of their rights they stripped of their uh, way of life sometimes when it comes to the Kurds they stripped of their uh, civil rights and other rights when it comes also to the Kurds in the north and other places in Syria so the dehumanization process has taken shape since uh, decades ago, not now. But one thing you cannot strip people off uh, is that what's going on in their heads. Simply no one can enter somebody's heads and understand what's going on inside them, whether, whether they are agreeing to what's happening to them or not, or they are changing religion or not, or they are changing their, their, their ideas or not. So these people, they stayed resilient, 
they started resisting and eventually they went against that uh, oppression and they wanted to live and that's why the the the, the poem we want to live came came uh, forth yes On the margin of a forgotten camp, we want to live with pain, with sadness, with agony, with the trauma. We want to live. With or without food, we want to live. With thirst, with enemies or without them, we still want to live. Under a torn tent leaking rain at night, we want to live. We want to live. At the long queue for clothes, we want to live. With every step we take towards death, we want to live. With every tree we pass, with every pride swallowed, we want to live. With or without our children, we want to live. With with or without our parents, we want to live. We want to live. Because we love life. Thank you. You're listening to the Refugee Radio program today in conversation with Syrian Kurdish poet Amir Darwish. And you heard his poem earlier in the program entitled We Want to Live. We're talking to Amir today about uh, his involvement in the new book entitled Resistance, Voices of Exiled Writers, a poetry and prose anthology celebrating 20 years of writing by members of the Exiled Writers Inc. organisation. The book comprises one chapter for each year from 2000 to 2020, and each chapter represents an aspect of the organisation's literary activism work and support for those resisting human rights abuses. From Kosovo, Ethiopia and Afghanistan, through Zimbabwe, the Uyghurs in China, Iran, Kurdistan and the Western Sahara, plus many other areas, and culminating with a chapter on the Black Lives Matter movement. The book uh, Resistance, Voices of Exiled Writers is available from Palewell Press and you can get information from the Palewell Press uh, or you can order copies rather from the Palewell Press website directly and, or you can also find copies of Resistance, uh, Voices of Exiled Writers on Amazon and Waterstones. And the book includes writing from exiled writers such as Amir Darwish. And by the way, that's my pen name. My name is pronounced as Amir. But my pen name is Amir Darwish. That's the name I write uh, with. Uh, I had also attempts at writing something different than poetry, which is an autobiography uh, that has been produced uh, in 2017. That was the first uh, volume of it. And uh, I've been to... Uh, festivals, literary events. Uh, my work has been translated to few languages and also have been published in, mainly in the Anglophone world. Uh, and uh, my poetry has been anthologized 
and different uh, anthology. My question is, when did you decide that you wanted to become a poet and mm. how did you know when you had become one? Ah. Uh, I didn't decide that I want to become a poet. I think poetry found me rather than I found poetry. At the age of 16, uh, I wrote a poem about Kurdistan and that poem was read to a friend of my brother and he turned out to be an informant and the authority found out about it. And they started coming to the house and questioning my mother, questioning me. They were, I must say to their credit, they were good critics. They were saying, <laughs> they your were, first, your they first were, critics. Yeah, my first critics. They were asking me if I had any other inspirations, any firmer, further inspirations. What do I like to write about? Is it only about the land and the imaginary land I like to write about? So I would say my journey as a poet started when I was 16, and that's how poetry found me. I found, it was after, of course, a long process of reading poetry and being indulged in books. But then I thought, why, why, why my identity is hidden? How can I emphasize my identity and bring it forward? Why there is no Kurdistan? Although I was 16, but I was thinking about the bigger picture, uh, as in why there isn't a land called Kurdistan, which belongs to the Kurds. And then I decided to write about it. And that's how it came to the attention to the authority of the authority. And eventually I had to flee the country. And it was directly because of, uh, of that, because of your writing. Yes, because wow. of the writing, because eventually, uh, eventually they, they came first to the house and they were asking and questioning and, and asking my family members, my mother, and quite aggressive and very abusive. And these guys, they don't come uh, like lightly. They come with machine guns and, and guns and with cars and, so eventually, I, I was put in prison, uh, experienced torture, and then I had to bribe myself out and run outside the country. And that's how you found yourself initially in Dubai? Yes. Yeah. And, and what, what, what were your experiences in, in Dubai? Were you there for a long time? I think I spent, I spent about three years, almost three years in Dubai. Uh, my experience that it's not much different in, 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 in the case of poetry and writing poetry freely, not much different from Syria. As uh, the Gulf countries are uh, theocracies kind of thing. Uh, they are managed by certain group. Uh, you cannot discuss the, 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 the discuss that group outside certain lines. You have to always be writing in a certain way. So I worked there and I found a few jobs and I've done them. 
But that goes back to your other question, how, when did I discover I'm a poet? Then I found out that, hang on a second, this is not me. I'm still attached to writing and I want to write. I want to keep writing. But I need to be in a place where I can write freely. And just at the point where I was thinking of producing another poem, I found out that this poem is going to help the authority in Dubai. Then I'm going to find myself in exile again. So I decided to leave Dubai and find a place where I can eventually call home, although the word home is, is something different, and also write freely. And that, that's when you came to the UK in 2003? Yes. And you mentioned the, the definition of the word home changing. Um, yeah. Changing shape we, we, as we adapt our expectations to our new realities. Um, things, yeah. uh, the, the, the word can mean a lot more than we thought and sometimes also a lot less than we thought. Um, yeah. What was your experience of coming here in, in 2003? It was quite different back then um, for asylum seekers than it is now. Yes, it was, it was much different. Uh, just to elaborate on the word home, I think the word home doesn't have to be connected to a certain geographical place or certain building. Or it has more, the people, for me, uh, my understanding of it, people will be more at home when they are surrounded by people who understand them and love them. That's what makes home. People, they make a home because people, they build buildings and build places, etc. It's not necessarily the building. So my experience, how I experienced coming here, it was in the northeast of England. Uh, I was underneath the lorry. The lorry boarded the ship and the ship arrived into Teesside Port. Teesport. And... I just went through the process, just like every other asylum seeker and another human being. Uh, I had a culture shock. I had uh, different experience. I experienced love. I experienced racism. I experienced, I experienced care. Uh, but asylum seekers arriving in that area, particularly, it was not something usual at the time. It was unusual. So I had to go through the process carefully and also watch out for, uh, for what uh, I'm doing and what I'm saying when I'm around people because not everybody liked the fact that the sun seekers are arriving at the time. But at the same time, there were people who are really caring and loving and wanting asylum seekers in the area, yes. And did it take you, uh, I mean, it was quite different back in uh, the early 2000s because the numbers, uh, again, uh, a dehumanizing quantifier, but the numbers were much higher than they are now. And the mm. um, people may not remember, but the newspaper headlines, uh, the front pages of, of many uh, newspapers on a daily basis would be anti-immigrant stories or anti-asylum seeker stories in particular. Yeah. And the Home Office was processing claims very slowly. So in, in, a, in a lot of cases, it took people years 
um, yeah. and years be- before they were eventually uh, had their asylum interviews even and, and finally granted refugee status or, or refused. Did you have a yeah. similar experience yourself? Yes. I, I had a close to similar experience myself. I had to acclaim asylum at the arrival, at the point of arrival. But then after that, uh, before my claim was decided, I met a British woman and uh, we got married at the time and my asylum claim was closed and another application was opened and uh, that's that's how I got settled eventually. But I was aware of the rhetoric, the newspaper rhetoric that was going on at the time, uh, anti-immigration, anti-asylum, and the process of the applications, they were taking very long time. I had friends who who waited for 10 years, some of them for 12 years until they get an interview or until they hear a decision about their claim. And you were, uh, uh, so you married a, a British uh, woman and yes. so if my understanding of the process is correct, that meant at some point you would have, the two of you would have had to go back to the port where you first arrived and had an yes. interview there to, for them to test whether your marriage was a genuine one or not. Yes, that's yeah. right. And, and this is, I've been to these interviews before and uh, they ask, they separate the man and the woman and they ask them the same questions in different yeah. rooms and then they come back and test if you had the same answers yes yes but do you remember some of the questions they asked you to test if it was a real relationship yeah uh one of the questions they asked which doesn't doesn't go from my mind is what color socks does he wear <laughs> <laughs> so they asked they asked emma at the time my my ex-wife was called emma and uh, they asked her what color socks does he wear or where does he keep the socks they asked me where does she keep the socks if she keeps them for you and uh, yeah some some questions like that it's, it's like um it's very much that there's a there used to be a game show for couples on tv yeah. that was the same <laughs> the same format it's a very yeah. bizarre experience I think they, someone mentioned that uh, show for me before yeah. when Mr. I told and, them about Mr. and Mrs. Mr. and Mrs. That's <laughs> the one, yes. Except uh, this one, you're not going to win a prize. You 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 win, uh, the, you know, permission to to marry, but uh, to, to marry, yes, yeah. It would be romantic if it wasn't so um, sort of you know awful. <laughs> and, yeah, <laughs> if it wasn't life changing decisions, yeah. gonna be. <laughs> You're listening to the Refugee Radio Programme in conversation with Amir Darwish. The next song is from the 2016 album entitled Kalachuri. We had one track from this earlier in the programme. Now Kalachuri is a refugee camp in Greece where a number of Kurdish musicians found themselves seeking shelter after the dangerous journey of death, as Amir calls it. This album was recorded in the camp itself and features Amar, Roddy and Ronav Zeno. You can find out more about that if you go to Bandcamp and search for Kalachori. So that's Kalachori, K-A-L-O-C-H-O-R-I. This track is called Walate Mindora. (laughs) 
the book that we're talking about today is entitled Resistance. One of my questions was going to ask you, what does resistance mean to you? Um, but I think you've answered it there. Yeah, resistance uh, means that never giving up on ideals, on principles, and certain principles in life that someone will take, never give up on them, no matter what's happening around around that person or that poet or that individual or, or but that human being. Uh, so the form of resistance they can choose, it doesn't have to be armed. Armed resistance is, for me, is easier than other form of resistance, if that makes sense. Mm. If you if you speak out the truth, if you speak up the uh, up your mind, and you say, "Okay, I'm not afraid to say certain things," and you know what awaits you is can be worse than just holding arms, then that's a form of resistance. Fighting a poem in a certain way can be a form of resistance. Holding a sample, wearing a certain T-shirt can be a form of resistance. Uh, making statement with your look can be a form of resistance. There are so many ways of, 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 of resisting. I love that line of never give up. We have a, um, uh, at Refugee Radio, we run uh, some community projects as well as doing the radio program. We, we run a um, mental health support group every Monday for uh, refugees and asylum seekers, mm. people who've been, um, you know, experienced traumatic a lot of them have ptsd they've been through traumatic experiences um you mm. know war and torture and, and, and so many awful things and we have a list of ground rules that we read out at the start mm. of every meeting and of course you know there's the usual things about um you know not having your mobile phone on or having a cup of tea at the break or whatever but the the last uh, ground rule is never give up and mm. i love mm. that that came out from discussions with the group and we talk about resilience and we talk about, um, you know, mm. post-traumatic resilience even, but yeah, never giving up is I think perhaps the, the greatest um, yeah. act of resistance. Um, you've talked about um, uh, trauma, I think briefly in the, uh, in the book launch, I think um, uh, I remember you saying that at, at first you, you couldn't tackle these subjects. Um, yeah, because they were just too big, and you had to be in a different place to, or at a different angle to to come at them. Mm, mm. Um, is that something that you feel has changed? You're now able to to tackle these these big subjects. Yeah, yeah. I think any traumatic experience, the the person who's traumatized or who's receiving the experience, they cannot straight away tackle the subject that's in my opinion, or deal with it on the spot. Uh, no matter how much they are equipped educationally or otherwise with, uh, to deal with, the, with any subject or any trauma. So it took me a while for things to th sink in and to understand what's going on. And questions came to mind. Is this really happening in the 21st century? Is this really happening to human to humans, to to people that I was around and I was with? Uh, I am hearing that certain person, certain friend has lost a leg. Another person, they have seen their their parents shot in front of them 
a third person has died or missing and we don't know where he is or she is. So all that they had, I had to take it in, absorb it and wait for a few years actually until I start writing about this. But the, what I'm glad and what I'm grateful for that when I started writing about it, I started writing about it in a way that with all the differences around me, but I still value precious life. Instead, instead of going the way that some people might go and say, I've seen all of this, and we've experienced this uh, human crisis within the Holocaust. Uh, when people when people had that experience, unfortunately, some people they decided to to end their lives. Sometimes, uh, Primo Levi is an example. Uh, no matter how much it took him, and he produced books, etc., but eventually he did that. But no, I thought this is the best hope for people that we emphasize that life is worth living. Still, uh, going through the trauma. Uh, going through the, the 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 therapy that has to be going through, and and bringing the pain forward pleasurably, if that makes sense. Uh, I know it's a, it's a strange thing to say, but the pain to bring it forward in a pleasurable way, which is writing poetry, drawing, singing, dancing. Uh, turn it in a form, into a form of art instead of keeping it inside. And it worked. It worked with so, so many groups. I know people from Syria and they came across and they said, okay, can I write a poem? For example, in workshops, they said to me, I'm only imagining this. So I, I said, write about it. Do something about it then see how it goes. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's such, it's like, um, uh, it's something that has to be, presumably, it has to be very carefully managed and um, uh, gently done. Yes. Yeah. Yes, gently done is very important, as in writing not in the first person sometimes, but writing as a proxy mm, yes. can, work, can work in a way instead of writing straight away and people they start to discharge that pain automatically when writing in the third person and start writing in the first person uh, they start to discharge that pain inside them automatically and 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 fascinatingly as well this is something that uh, it sounds like it's taken place in a group setting or in a collab you know there's been a, a hand on the shoulder or a kind of collaborative uh, aspect to it do you think that part of the success of the healing comes from being in a group and not just doing it uh, on your own by yourself? Of course, yes. Uh, as a human beings are social animals anyway, and there will be a sense of congeniality, a sense of togetherness uh, with the others that when looking around and thinking, hang on a second, this is not only me who is in this place. It's not only me who suffered this. There are people who suffered this. Look at so-and-so, he's going on and doing fine. Look at so-and-so, he's okay and he's, he's, uh, he achieved certain things. 
So, of course, as a group, it makes things much better. And I would say not easier, but more possible. Mm. This is the Refugee Radio program online at www.refugeeradio.org.uk and on FM in the Brighton Hove area on 97.2. Uh, we're talking to Amir Darwish today about his involvement in the new publication Resistance Voices of Exiled Writers. Uh, we've had some music today from an album entitled Kalachori, which was recorded in the Kalachori refugee camp in Greece. And the musicians include Amarzino and his two sons, Roddy and Ronav. They were craftsmen and musicians from Afrin in northern Syria. And in the beginning of 2016, they reached Europe carrying just a few belongings and especially including their musical instruments. They quickly got stuck in the improvised refugee camp of Idomeni just after Macedonian government uh, closed the borders with Greece at the end of January 2016. Uh, but by the summer, the family found themselves in Kalachuri, which was one of the numerous uh, refugee camps that sprang up on military bases as a kind of emergency response um, around northern Greece. There were approximately 500 people in the Kalachori camp, exclusively Kurdish families, and the refugees there tried to build a, a kind of life in common and a, and a sense of community when the camp opened. And this uh, music is, is, was a crucial part of that, and this album kind of captures that moment in time, really. This is the final track on the album, Ladai, and it features the voices of children from the camps, and these are children who made the dangerous crossings with their families, and I think you can sort of hear something of the traumatic journey in their voices, as well as the undefeatable resistance of the human spirit that's so prevalent in the resilience of, of children. And this song uh, features Firaz, and Milav and Zainab. <laughs> That was Ladai, the final track of the Kalachori Refugee Camp album. And this is the final part of uh, our interview today on Refugee Radio with the Syrian Kurdish poet Amir Darwish. They're quite... Quite bizarrely, alongside all this, I managed also to gain a few degrees. Uh, I had a BA in history from Teesside University, an MA in international relations from Durham, an MA in creative writing from Goldsmith, and now I'm doing a PhD at Northampton. So juggling few things at the same time, it's not easy, but... Uh, I like it. It keeps my brain stimulated. What's your PhD in? Uh, I'm doing my PhD in history. And uh, my focus is uh, on the subject of Islamofascism. Uh, as joint comparison of there are trends between uh, the fascist era and some Islamist movements. And when I say Islamist, I mean Islamist movements who are violent, not Islam itself as a religion. So you mean groups like uh, Al-Qaeda or Muslim Brotherhood or something yes. like that? Yes. My focus precisely is on the Muslim, Muslim Brotherhood. You got it right. Mm -hmm. And its founder, 
Hassan al-Banna, who founded the group in Egypt in 1928. And you'd seen parallels um, between him and the uh, the Nazis, uh, yeah. or just or, or just fascists more broadly. Uh, well, fascists more broadly, the Nazis classed as fascists. Of course, some historians disagree with that, but they are classed as fascists. And also with Mussolini Italy and other fascist groups, mainly who are who found religion to be at the board backbone of their of their rhetoric. You did the MA at Goldsmiths as well. That's that's brilliant. That's a really I'd love to do the uh, creative writing MA. A yeah. very prestigious course. Yes, it is prestigious prestigious course and. Uh, that was the most enjoyable degree out of my three degrees, I must admit, mm. because it was something to do with what I liked, not something I liked all of them, but something what I liked more, which is writing and creative writing. And that's how my uh, some of my poetry came, came, came to life after learning techniques and way of writing and reading. A uh, few poets. Uh, yeah, I did the MA there and it was a great pleasure. And you mentioned you, you wrote an autobiography in, in 2017. Yes. Yeah. And you published an autobiography, in fact. Yes, I published that autobiography. It's called From Aleppo Without Love. And uh, Like I a postcard either... where you say from so-and-so with love or from Russia yes. with love. Or whatever. From Russia with love or... But yeah. this is from Aleppo Without Love. Um, I published it in 2017. My second, the second part of my autobiography, hopefully is going to be published in the next year or two. And it's called The Days of Aleppo. Yeah. And you've, uh, have you had uh, more of your poetry published? Yes, I had two collections. The first collection called Don't Forget the Couscous and the second collection called Dear Refugee. And uh, uh, what can you tell me about? They're both very interesting titles. What can you tell me about the, the names of both of those collections? <clears throat> yeah. Uh, the first one, Don't Forget the Couscous, it's a, it's a line from one, one of my poems in the, in the, in the, in the book. And uh, it's just, again, it's a message that there are too many things that immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers and different communities, they can contribute to society. I think, and I believe in this, that society can function better and it's more enjoyable as a multicultural society. Uh, it's going to be boring if I'll have fish and chips all the time. and there would be nothing else to choose from or whatever. So I tried to emphasize in that collection that there's so much contribution. It's an enjoyable contribution. Sometimes we don't think about it because it's there, but uh, we have to take notice of it. Uh, as for my second collection, Dear Refugee, I chose the name after the Syrian crisis and the refugee crisis has hit its highest level in 2015. The people, they started working from uh, 15 and 16, started working from Syria to Germany, basically. Uh, 
uh, they took that walk to to save their lives and save their children. And I decided to dedicate it to them and call it the refugee. The Don't Forget the Couscous reminds me, I made a book um, two, two years ago now uh, called Takeaway Heritage, um, uh-huh. which was about all of the, uh, I realized there'd never been an academic study of kebab shops. Um, uh-huh. And I thought, well, this is the intersection of multiculturalism and social change and nobody takes them seriously. Um, yeah. They're just seen as a sort of joke. Um, yeah. for some reason but um, so it ended up being a, 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 a study of restaurants cafes kebab shops takeaways but all sort of Middle East and and mm. um, uh, you know Mediterranean and um, yeah, yeah very much it's uh, still to this day I mean it was all oral histories you know long form interviews with the people who were working in them and running them and, and eating at them. Mm. but still to this day people see it as a silly thing or a, uh, a trivial thing but actually it's a huge it's a huge thing. It's a huge thing. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And food is is life, after all. Yeah, um, of course. <laughs> but I did have a question about the idea of being a poet in exile. Yeah. And what that means, but I don't know if that's something that that chimes with you. I don't know if you. I don't know if you see yourself as a poet in exile or not. Yes, I think I see myself poet in exile. But uh, exile is more what what I am, if if that makes sense. I will always stay in exile. I will always be a poet in exile, and because I, I can't take out the memories and the things that happened in my childhood, it's a natural process. Humans, whatever they have been put into their heads at their childhood, that thing cannot come out easily. So that's why I see myself always as a poet in exile, but at the same time, I'm surrounded by people who provide me with a home. Uh, going back to the idea of home, and it's about people, not the places, or not the geographical place or the building. I, I, I suppose it's, a, it's something I have to live with as long as I don't get exiled to yet another country. Uh, hopefully not. No, I don't think it will happen in, uh, from Britain to another place. Yeah, there's something I think I I need to get off my chest. I think there's there's some sort of misunderstanding that some people or certain people, not certain people, certain person or certain organization made Amir Darwish. Uh, that's, that's entirely untrue. What, what I believe made me is my writing, my message, the message being to the humans, from the human to another humans. And that's mainly what made Amir Darwish. It's not certain organization or certain person. That's, that's about it, really. It's just that I I am a self-made man, if that makes sense. Yes. I came I came here as an asylum seeker. I started from scratch. Uh, poetry is my life. Writing is my life. What made me and made Amir Darwish is is his poetry and his writing and his message, and that's how I would like to continue for the rest of my life. 
Thank you for listening to Refugee Radio and thank you to our special guest Amir Darwish today uh, talking about his involvement in the new book Resistance uh, from Exiled Writers Inc. Exiled Writers Inc. is an organisation that brings together writers from repressive regimes and war-torn situations and embraces migrants and exiles. It provides a space for writers to be heard and they organise excellent poetry reading nights at the Poetry Cafe and they make publications of uh, Exiled Writers. You can find out more about Exiled Writers at www.exiledwriters.co.uk including information about the book. And just finally, time to say thank you for listening to Refugee Radio. Thank you.